This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Tim Horton's an easy target for Kathleen Wynne. Uh, that is the commentary today, to which Chris says on Facebook, we all know how Scott Thompson feels about Wynne. He has no use for her. Correct. Uh, but his wage, uh, but this wage increase is a long time in coming and overdue. If businesses can't afford to pay their people a fair living wage, then maybe they should just, uh, then maybe they shouldn't be in business. Gee, I wonder if anybody knows the ramifications of that statement. All right, let's just close up shop. Any of the businesses that are close to the line, let's just shut them down. That's a great idea, isn't it? Uh, Today's larger chains like Tim Hortons have no business... Uh, have, sorry, no excuse penalizing their employees for this long-deserved increase. Businesses like Tim Hortons have been making billions in profits off the backs of employees for years while inflation has eaten up their disposable income. Whether Wynne did it for votes or not, it is irrelevant. Uh, It is needed and got done. And again, nobody disagrees with this. And again, this is what I hate about people who are so addicted to this cause, is it's not one or the other. It's the speed in which it's being done. And this is very very, very much like the electricity file. If you can, if you question the way Kathleen Wynne is spending your money on the electricity file, she labels you as a fossil fuel burning pig and you don't want to save the planet. Let me tell you right now, uh, renewable energy and increasing the minimum wage are all great ideas and I believe are supported by the majority of Canadians. What the problem is, is this lady has no cost analysis, does no due diligence and never has a plan. She just throws it out there and expects every Everyone else to react. And let's not forget her energy mistake was, gee, I didn't realize it was going to cost you this much. And again, businesses have been telling Premier Wynne that there will be circumstances, there will be ramifications if you ram this through so quickly. And that's exactly what's happened. And it's as if she's pretending that the issues are just not the issues. So again, nobody's arguing about increasing the minimum wage. Just like renewable energy, it's how she rams it through without talking to anybody whose lives this affects. Simple as that. Which leads me to believe this has nothing to do with the employees. It has nothing to do with the minimum wage. It has nothing to do with renewable energy. It has everything to do with getting elected. So, uh, phone lines are open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, Brian wants to weigh in on this. Brian, what are your thoughts? Who are you in favor of, Tim Hortons or the employees? Who's right, who's wrong here? What, what are your thoughts? Well, I tell you what, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's a question of right or wrong. I, I agree with you. Uh, it's, you know, the minimum wage thing should have happened. Did it happen too fast? Absolutely. My thought is, if it had been... Joe's dry cleaning service that laid off one of his three employees would Wynn have said anything and called this guy a bully? I don't think so. Yeah, I think Tim Hortons is an awful easy target simply because they're very generous when it comes to their benefits. Uh, how, you know, forget about Tim Hortons and the franchisees. What about the mom and pop organizations that you're talking about? If this is yep. the way large companies are reacting, how are smaller companies going to react? How are the mom and pop operations going to react? That's the. Well, I think they're going to they're react the same way as what that uh, kind of asinine comment that person made on the email was. Just close up shop. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. And they, you know, and nothing's going to be said. She certainly wouldn't call, you know, some mom and pa organization bullies yeah. for getting rid of an employee. They almost, you know, it was the perfect storm for her as a bailout to take the heat off her and, you know, make 
all business looked like the boogeyman in this thing. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, this is political. This is brilliant political oh, PR. Brilliant moves on her part. Absolutely, and I, I mean to Tim Hortons, you know, to boycott Tim Hortons for do something that probably ninety percent of business in the province is going to do. It's outrageous, and for these people to be jumping on this bandwagon, I think they're just making Win look good. And I totally, I agree with you. I, it should have happened. Uh, the fact that the minimum wage should have gone up, but it never would. This never would have happened had it not been uh, the fact that Tim Hortons, you know, took had the nerve or the kahunas. And to again, come out and you're say, right. You're right. It's this family that has the money. The original, the, the original founding family that still has a couple of franchises that said, "Hey, we're going to take the heat for everybody else. We'll let them uh, call names at us." That's not the point. And these were the one. And many are saying that it's these guys that are standing up for the rest. Thanks for the call, Brian. Much appreciated. Rob's on the line. Rob, what are your thoughts? Who, who, who do you? Which side do you take on this one? Well, I I agree with 100 percent that people should make a living wage. Yep. I, I also I also think you're right that it went in too fast. But now we're now we're going to have people standing behind a counter pouring hot water into a paper cup, making fourteen dollars an hour, and soon to be making fifteen dollars an hour. If if I happen to be a carpenter, so I make a pretty decent wage. But um, what I'm trying to say is, construction laborers are lucky to get eighteen to twenty dollars an hour. And, and they have to have a lot more skill and work a lot harder than somebody behind the counter of a fast food restaurant. All right, Rob, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. Uh, let's bring in uh, Chris Buckley. He's the president of the Ontario Federation of Labor and on the line with us now. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, your thoughts on what you've been hearing uh, on, on the telephone? Is this an easy? Is this an easy mark for uh, Kathleen Wynne? And if this is the way larger companies are reacting, what about the smaller mom and pop organizations? Is Tim Hortons a good example here? Well, listen. Uh, I've listened to some of the call the comments from your previous callers, and I've listened to some issues in the last week. People need to understand one thing. When would be a good time to increase the minimum wage? The current the right now, right wage. now, Chris, and raise it right want, now, you, right now. What want, the issue is here, Chris, is the, you is the speed. To, you, you asked me. You asked me to speak. Do you want to listen to me? Yeah, absolutely. But the answer to your okay, question so, immediately so, so, is right now. It's the speed and how much. That's the issue here. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm not going to get into the political debate between the between the Liberals, the Conservatives, the NDPs. I don't want to talk about the the political debate right now. I want to talk about the reality that this increase in minimum wage will help lift over 1.5 million Ontario workers out of poverty. Nobody could survive on the current minimum wage of 11.60 an hour. There is over 1.5 million. Ontario workers try to survive making 11.60 an hour. Everyone knows, especially in the region of Hamilton, hundreds of thousands of good paying permanent jobs have left this province for whatever reasons, and I'm not going to point the finger because there's a number of reasons, in excess of 700,000 good-paying permanent jobs left Ontario over the last decade. Ontario has, for the most part, turned into a service sector retail economy. Workers working extremely hard, living in poverty. So a $14 an hour minimum wage is a good start. I totally agree with that. When, when, when you look at Tim Hortons, Tim Hortons is the first major multinational corporation that have done something to disadvantage workers. They have put their hands in workers' pockets as a 
form of retaliation for having to pay them a higher wage. I'm certain there'll be more to follow. I'm also certain that there are a number of small businesses in Ontario that have gone public and said, hey, we don't like it, but we understand we have to do it. This is law. This is Bill 148. We fought for two years to push the government under our campaign called Make It Fair to improve employment standards and labor law for workers, something that hadn't been addressed for over 25 years in the province of Ontario. We know the employment landscape has changed dramatically in this province, and it was time that the laws addressed that. The increase in minimum wage, there's going to be some heartburn. And when people talk about doing it too fast, we knew there would be significant pushback from the business community. In fact, I met with Minister Flynn, the Ontario Minister of Labour, the President and Vice President of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce a year ago to talk through some difficulties their members were having. We offered to meet on a regular be- a regular basis to address any obstacles that would be put in front of everybody, the labour community, the business community and government, and it was refused by the Ontario Chamber of Commerce to attend any more meetings. So everyone has an opportunity here. I'm still willing to sit in a room, sit around a table with anybody that is having difficulties with the appropriate people and try to find a solution. At the end of the day, we need workers, regardless of where they're working, regardless if they belong to a union or not, to have a decent income. It's not rocket science. If you pay people a decent wage, at the end of the day, when the bills are paid and the food is put on the table, any extra income they may have They're going to spend in their communities. That's going to help their communities get stronger. It's going to help our province get stronger. I understand all the arguments, but it was high time that the minimum wage was increased, and people need to understand it is now law. So to those employers that are doing everything they can out of spite to disadvantage their employees, I caution them not to get too aggressive to disadvantage workers because the Ontario Federation of Labor is going to help workers right across this province, whether they belong to a union or not. And to those employees that find themselves in precarious type employment, join a union because the labor movement knows how to protect workers' rights. Is it spite or survival? Uh, You know what? I think it's a mixed bag. There's no doubt. I'm not going to disagree. I'm not going to disagree, and I've been saying it for for two years, Scott, wherever I was with our Make It Fair campaign. We know there's going to be some businesses that are going to have difficulties. I know the government has already given them a tax break, but I understand if there are are businesses that can present the evidence that this is a life-and-death situation, then we all have an obligation to listen to their concerns and try to work through them. This is not about closing down workplaces. This is not about closing down businesses. This is about helping workers survive, lifting workers out of poverty, building the Ontario we want. Collectively, regardless of political party, regardless of what position we hold, we should all collectively be trying to make this the province we want. I don't think anybody's going to disagree with that. It sounds real good, but I don't know if anybody can withstand a 32% increase in their operating budgets over 18 months. I mean, you know, if your household budget went up 32%, a lot would be in a pretty tough spot. Well, I I understand some of the arguments, but I'm not going to totally agree. Tim Hortons just happens to be the first company that has done this. Now, I have reached out to their CEO, Mr. Daniel Swartz, and asked him to use his muscle and influence to reverse any negative impacts coming to their employees across Tim Hortons. I hope he does the right thing because there's no doubt there'll be others to follow, 
but we worked very hard for two years with our campaign. The labor movement, our labor councils, our activists across the province, in our Make a Fair campaign to improve the lives of all workers, and we're not going to back down. We're going to make this the Ontario we want. Uh, do we know how many Tim Hortons are acting this way? At this point, we, we can identify approximately half a dozen, uh, but er, this thing, this thing uh, is a moving target. Uh, and I'll just say th- this one thing as far as Tim Hortons. Not every, not every franchise is doing this. And to the franchisees who are not doing this, I would encourage them to contact the head of RBI and ask them to get involved because it's not our intent to disadvantage any workplace. We have not called for a full boycott across the province. We don't want to disadvantage workplaces and specifically disadvantage workers. We want franchises to understand that we're not going to take this lying down. Imagine this, if you work for a Tim Hortons, and just because you're, and just because your boss had to give you a raise. Now you have to pay $100 for a uniform. Now if you were getting a free drink during your shift, you have to pay for it, and you also have to pay for the paper cup. The stories go on and on and on. It's being vindictive. It's being spiteful. And that's not the way any worker in this province should be treated. Uh, what would you say to those that say that's unrealistic and Tim Hortons has traditionally been one of the best employers to work for when it comes to benefits? The one in Coburg was playing 100% of their dental plan. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of large companies that don't offer that to their full-time employees. So no, you're absolutely uh, right. You're so absolutely right. At the end of the day, uh, is it fair to be picking on a company who was hitting far above the belt anyway, and, and now what they're doing is just trimming that? It's not like they're doing anything illegal. It's not like they're doing anything. They're still one of the better employees as far as is that sort of work, I would guess. No? Uh, I'm not disagreeing. The, the, loco- the locations in Colberg, which were the first to come out of the gate, you're absolutely right. They were going above and beyond, but it's just shitty timing. Now, listen, remember, on May the 30th, the government made their announcement and their intent to increase the minimum wage as of January 1st of 2018. Where were these employers at that time? How many of these employers had gone to the government and said, listen, this is going to hurt our bottom line. This is going to hurt our operating costs. I just find it very distasteful and very dis- disrespectful that this location in particular, given notice the first week in January, once they had to give the workers a raise, as to all the takeaways. Was there any dialogue prior to this? Was there any dialogue between May the 30th to January the 1st? No, there wasn't. It was the way it was handled, and it was very vindictive and spiteful. Uh, we had uh, someone from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business on, and they said they've been hammered against this since it was announced and, and that nobody's yeah. listening. So, you know, is it fair to say that, you know, uh, nobody did anything or asked any questions until this point? Small business has been banging this drum for an awfully long time since it was announced. Yeah. They say they're not yeah, being listened labor- to. And the labor movement was banging the drum just as, just as hard. No, but you said they the weren't asking any questions. Exactly yeah, but you said they weren't asking any questions. No, no, what, what, I said, what I said, if you were listening, is that we met once about a year ago, and then we offered to meet on a regular basis to try to work through any heartburn their experiences, and they refused. The increase in the minimum wage in Ontario will generate an extra $5 billion a year into the Ontario economy. You give people some extra money, they're going to spend it in their communities. It's not rocket science. 
Uh, I understand that. And again, nobody's disagreeing with that. And, you know, whenever we have anyone like you on to talk about this, you say the same thing, but you don't talk about the speed of it. Again, nobody is, uh, I've seen very few people that are against this. That is not the issue, if you're listening. The issue so, is the speed in which it's being implemented. So when would be a good time to do it? Just do it gradually. When? Do it How right now. It Start right now and do it a little bit every year, every couple of years, every year. So that... So then, through your opinion and the other people that are down on this increase, how long? And small business. Think, how long do you think it should take to give workers a wage increase so they don't have to visit the food bank every week, although they're working at a job every day? Again, these are discussions that you have with with small business and the players that are involved. Uh, you know, a, a, again, these are issues that you discuss with the people that are involved in the practice of small business. Uh, nobody is disputing the raise in minimum wage. What they're disputing no, no, is pe- the speed people- is with it's done, the, the way it's it's being implemented, and the speed at which it's being implemented. No, no, and I and I've heard all that, and I hear what you're saying. So you uh, think the majority? Let me ask you this. Let me. Do you think the majority of the people that are against this are against raising minimum wage? Period, or do you think the majority of the people in this country are for raising the minimum wage, just the speed of which it's being raised? I think it's a mixed bag of opinions out there, but nobody can tell me in their opinion when workers should be lifted out of poverty in regards to their earnings as to what the time frame would be. I've heard a lot of different opinions that it's too quick. It should be put in gradually. When is a good time? When is a good time to give workers a raise in pay? Every year is a good time to give a worker a raise in pay. A raise in pay. It's as simple as that. Every, every year is a good time to give a worker a raise in pay. What the question Scott, is, can I ask is you, how can speed I ask you a question? Let me ask you a personal question, because I'm going to tell you what my answer is. Can you live on the old minimum wage 11.60 or could you live on today's minimum wage of $14 an hour cuz I know I couldn't can you when i was making minimum wage it was a starter job for me yeah so so that goes back to my opening comments back in the day before we lost hundreds of thousands of good paying permanent jobs you're absolutely right a minimum wage job was your entry into the workforce that's not the case today we become a retail service sector economy. The days of coming out of high school and going into a good-paying job where you had good wages, a benefit package, a defined benefit pension plan have all but disappeared. Those days are gone. Well, so yeah. We need- I mean, people are requiring more education than that now. Listen, we did, we did a survey and for, for, for 2016 where 460,000 young people had graduated to part-time jobs in the province of Ontario, not in the field they went and educated themselves in. They graduated to part-time jobs. Out of those 460,000 young people, 70,000 of them admitted working two and three part-time jobs. This is an opportunity, and we can't lose sight. We owe we owe young people in this province an opportunity to have a good future. There are so many young people that are forced to work in part-time employment, making minimum wage, can't afford to move out of their parents' house, can't afford to start their lives, can't afford to think about starting a family. That's not what we want for young people in this province. Chris Buckley has been with us, President, Ontario Federation of Labour. Chris, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you for your time. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
Obviously, uh, what has happened post Harvey Weinstein uh, uh, allegations have uh, come to the forefront, and many asking whether this movement will stay still alive, ho- stay alive, hoping this movement will stay alive, and uh, and as well make some change in the new year. Uh, the latest, as well as Michael Douglas, who seems to be getting out ahead of it. Uh, actor James Franco, uh, fresh from a win at the Golden Globes, faces allegations of sexual misconduct. These allegations were addressed uh, last night on Stephen Colbert's Late Show, where he denied that the uh, denied the suggestion he acted improperly and chose to focus on the broader uh, the broader movement uh, for gender equality. Uh, we were going to play just a couple of clips of this, but you know I think we need to play this in enti- in its entirety in order for you to to actually get the feeling of the conversation. So this is actor James. James Franco uh, appearing uh, with Stephen Colbert last night, uh, and of course Stephen Colbert asks him about the allegations filed against him. Now we've got to go here in a minute, but before we do, I, I do want to ask you something, and I, I know I mentioned backstage that I wanted to talk to you about this, and if, if you're okay talking about it, I wanted to ask you about some criticism that you got on a Golden Globes night, because you were wearing a Time's Up pin in support of the Time's Up movement, uh, which has been created by many powerful uh, women in Hollywood to say the time is up for the abuse, uh, misuse of women, both sexually and otherwise, not only in Hollywood, but around the country. They've established a, a fund, a legal defense fund for women and men who are being abused in this way. You got criticized for wearing that. Um, do you know why? And, and, and what, what, do you have a response? Do you have anything you want to say about that criticism? Well, first I want to say I, I, I wore because I do support it. I, I was, you know, look, I was so excited to, to win, but being in that room that night was incredible. I mean, it was, it was powerful, and there were incredible voices, and I support it. I support change. I support uh, 50-50 in 2020, which just means, you know, people that are underrepresented, women and um, people of color, people in the LGBT community get, you know, positions, leadership positions that, that they fill all positions that they've been deprived of. I completely believe in that. Um, that's why I wore it. Um, there were some things on Twitter. Um, Today. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I haven't read them. I've heard about them. Um, okay, first of all, I don't, I have no idea what I did to Ali Sheedy. I directed her in a, a play off Broadway. I had nothing but a great time with her. Uh, 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 total respect for her. Mm-hmm. I had no, I have no idea why she was upset. She took the tweet down. I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't speak for her. I don't know. Um, the others, look, in my life, I, I pride myself on taking responsibility for things that I've done. I have to do that to maintain my uh, well-being. Uh, I do it whenever I know that, that there's something wrong or needs to be changed. I make it a point to do it. The things that I heard that were on Twitter um, are not accurate. Um, but I completely support people coming out and being able to have a voice because they didn't have a voice for so long. So I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, shut them down in any way. It's, it's, I think, a, a, a good thing and I support it. Um, well, is there something else uh, that you think, some way to have this discussion that isn't 
in social media? Is there some way to have this conversation that piggybacks on what's happening in social media? Because when accusations happen, because for so long accusations were not believed, when accusations happen that in, in your case you say that this is not an accurate thing for me, do you have any idea of what the answer might be to come to some sense of what the truth is so there can be some sort of reconciliation between people who clearly have different views of things? I mean, it's a big question, but I don't know, I don't know how to leave uh, or to further this discussion. I mean, like I said, if I, you know, I, I can't, I, I can't, the way I live my life, I can't live if, if there's restitution to be made. I will, I will make it. Um, so if I've done something wrong, I, I will fix it. I, I have to. Um, I mean, I, I think that's how that, that works. Um, I, I don't know what else, I, I, I don't know what else to do. I mean, I'm, as far as the, the bigger issues, you know, how we do it, I, look, I, I really don't have the answers. And I think the point of this whole thing is that we listened. There were, you know, in, incredible people talking that night. They had um, a lot to say, and I'm here to listen and learn and change my perspective where, where it's off, and I'm completely willing, and I want to. Well, thank you for taking a moment to talk about it right now. <laughs> Congratulations again. All right, uh, that was awkward, just to say the least. Uh, actor James Franco, uh, fresh from his Golden Globe win on Stephen Colbert's Late Show last night, uh, addressing the uh, allegations against him and uh, those who uh, uh, supported the movement were unhappy with him uh, wearing the pin, considering... Uh, alleged allegations uh, against him. Let's bring in Alma Arguello, Executive Director of Sabbaths of Halton, and she is with us now. Alma, thank you for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Tell everybody what Sabbaths is. Sabbaths is the Sexual Assault and Violence Intervention Services here in Halton Region. So uh, you heard, Alma, uh, what we just played there uh, from the Stephen Colbert show last night, actor James Franco. What are your thoughts? What do you think about when you hear that? You know, I, I, was, I saw it last night and just listened to it again. Um, it's, he seems almost confused like, <laughs> when, he, when uh, he asked the question. is the notion of this privilege uh, that he has. You know, he never really had to put himself in someone else's shoes. Uh, there's, a, there's this male with power and privilege that and he seems, like I said, like he's just confused because he has never had to recognize and put himself in the, in the lived experience of a woman or a lived experience of someone else. Um, and when he talked about the criticism that he got because he, he was wearing the Time's Up pin, it's if you're going to use that, you have to own your behavior, mm-hmm. and you have to own your story and your narrative. And I don't think he's owning it. Like he just he is confused. He like walked around the issue a little bit, and that's not owning. Why do you think? Behavior. Why do you think he's confused? Is is he confused whether he's guilty or not, or does he question whether un- what he did was wrong, or even if he did it? What are your thoughts? I think what I think is because he doesn't really understand what he did wrong, and hmm. uh, I don't. And, but that's not an excuse. Um, and this is why I think I have been in the show before when I talk about uh, why the importance of starting the conversation with young boys 
mm-hmm. in terms of what is appropriate and what is appropriate behavior, what is appropriate touching, what is consent. And having those conversations uh, are very, very important because then it will allow us to have a balanced platform. Um, and, like, he, him, or, uh, him not being able to... I think that my the thing that bothers me the most most is him not being the like he comes from a position of power. The the women who tweeted said that she stopped acting because of his um of of, of the last role that he had with him, right? Mm-hmm. That's a huge thing to say. That means that there has something did happen that he's not recognizing. Yeah, he especially uh, with the Ali Sheedy thing, he didn't seem to know uh, what the problem was or, or, or what the issue was and then pointed to the fact that she had taken the tweet down. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do we learn from that? How do we, how well, do we, how do we process that? And it, and it goes back to that, that uh, the male power and privilege that actually exists in Hollywood, right? He has. He holds a lot of power and privilege over people when he, that he's directing and that he's working with. And he has in his, in his hands, whether direct or indirect, the power to decide at that time, maybe, I'm not sure, but the career path for this individual. I mean, to the point that the woman doesn't completely quit acting, right? So it shows that there has to be, the conversation has to happen. And another thing that kind of bothered me, uh, I don't know if you noticed in the Golden Globe, is that when the women got an award, they went up and they commanded the, pro- the platform and they they took the time to acknowledge it. But the men didn't. And he didn't either. Hmm. So wearing a pin is not a cop-out. You, just because you have a pin doesn't mean that you're okay and you're immune. Uh, I thought some guys did say something about it, though, did they not? I mean, it, 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 how could you not? It was It was there. It was the elephant in the room. But I don't. I don't think a lot of guys. I, uh, mm. Maybe I'm mistaken. Why, why do you th- Why do you think that is? Do you think they confused, didn't know what to say, thought if they said anything they'd be judged? Why do you think I they were I silent? Think. I, or do you I think they're think just I, unaware of the whole dang thing? Oh, you know what? Like sometimes when there, is, some men don't know how to fit in within the feminist movement, and I think right now in the a forecast of um, people coming forward, they, they, don't, they feel like if they say something, it's going to be the wrong thing and they're going to be judged, right? Mm-hmm. But just, again, it goes back to acknowledging your power, acknowledging your privilege, and especially in the patriarchal society that we live in, acknowledging all that and just, you know, and, and just saying, okay, that's not me or that's not my anxious or I, I don't agree with those actions or I don't agree with that platform. You know what I mean? Just say mm-hmm. it. But I think that there is this situation in where not everybody knows where they fit in. There's still the conversation is happening, and this is great that in order for change to happen, sometimes they have to be uncomfortable, and that's okay. Uh, how do you think the, the public will react to this? Because obviously when these accusations have come out, it's interesting. Some people, it takes right down Kevin Spacey, the Harvey Weinsteins, or Weinsteins rather, of the world, yet others seem to be getting a pass um, you know, whether it's it's Woody Allen or or, or even another a- uh, uh, allegation up against uh, Michael Douglas. Why do you think that some are interpreted some way and some are another? And how do you think the public's going to react to this? I'm not sure it's an apology. I guess it's an acknowledgement um, mm-hmm. uh, from James Franco. How do you think the public's going to react to this? Well, 
Um, I think, I mean, he plays, um, in all his films, he has played someone like, uh, his character has always been like the comedic part, you know? And the people, I think the young people that um, look up to him, like that they they see, they have seen him, not as a role model, I'm not going to go that far, but they see there has an impact that happens. I mean, he has um, he has done a lot of films. I think people are going to be a little bit shocked, right? They go, "What? Not someone else is bringing is uh, is being brought down." Um, but again, for us as a as a, mo- as a movement within the sexual assault movement, I think it's very important for the conversations to happen. And I, and I, whether it takes some people are not going to be happy, and I think that has been that has come out. And even looking at the, through social media, how some people are um, have been very um, uh, I don't know how to say it, very upset uh, that certain uh, stars uh, that they have put so high have flaws, and uh, they feel that we are attacking or people are attacking them. Mm-hmm. But. I feel that with James Franco, um, at least he's not saying, oh, that never happened. I think he's trying to take some of that responsibility of behavior. So uh, d- does he does he get different treatment because of that? Uh, is, no, nobody it, should get a treatment. It, it's he, not about is, right is, or wrong. Is this the same as uh, a Harvey Weinstein? Will he, will, is his career over? What do you think? I don't think, I, I, to be I, I wouldn't be able to answer that question, but mm-hmm. I, I, it's not a, a black and white, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's someone who came out and say, my interactions with you made me feel so uncomfortable that I had to stop acting. That is huge. Yeah. That, and then she took her tweet down. And why did she took her tweet down? Is it because of the backlash that happened after that? Uh, is it because the most of the time, of the though, power? I'm thinking most of the time, though, I'm thinking you're getting support rather than backlash. Although now that it was taken down, it does make one question how accurate it was, doesn't it? Or does it? And that's the thing. It creates, again, that, that culture of, well, was she really telling the truth? Yeah. And we're back. Who do we believe? How do we decide who we believe here, Alba? Because it seems like there's, as you said, different scenarios in each one. Some are to more more of a to a degree than others. Um, do we paint them all with the same brush? Um, how do we deal with these? I, I mean, do we just assume that everyone who has allegations against them is guilty? Um, and I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. Yeah, Emma. no, no, and I understand where you're coming from. It, again, I don't, I, I can't answer that question, right? Mm. Because I, this, um, some people say, well, these are just allegations, and I'm saying, no, this is the conversation that's happening. Nobody is going to come out and put on Twitter, this happened to me. I had to change my life because of this event. That is a courageous thing to say. No woman is going to go on TV and say, uh, Harvey Weinstein uh, did this to me. Oh, I was just kidding. Nobody does that. that those things did happen. The conversation is happening. Um, what about, you know, and, and maybe I'm being cynical here, um, and I'm trying to understand it all, Elma, but is there a chance that someone may, whether it's male or female, accuse somebody of something that they didn't do, but because this movement's so strong right now, they'll, they'll be vilified? Um, I have heard that argument before, and to be honest with you, no, no survivor would put themselves out there that way. Yeah, but, I'm, okay, and you're there, assuming, there is, wait a second. I mean, 
let me ask you this, Alma. There are scenarios. I'll I'll be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I've seen, and there are scenarios that sometimes that has happened. But those are very minimal and very, very small. I guess the point that I'm making is you said anybody that's had this happen to them would not take this approach. But what what about people that haven't had it happen to them and are using this for some sort of reason? Then I think that's, that's horrible. That is very unethical and horrible. How do we, de- how, do we, we de- how do we decipher which is which? I, well, we have to decipher when, if the survivor is willing to really come forward and tell the story. Mm-hmm. And if society is also willing and institutions are willing to move forward and put the story um, and move forward, whether they choose to do criminal charges, whether they choose, whether a lot of the people who are, have been accused and allegedly accused, um, I haven't really heard a lot of, um, no, I didn't do it. Mm, good point. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. haven't heard anybody come out and say, no, that's absolutely false, and I'm, uh, I didn't do any of that. Although Michael Douglas is now the latest to come out, and he's, it, it seems that uh, he's getting out ahead of it, uh, but he denies sexual misconduct allegations before they go public. Uh, he said that uh, he was responsible for foul language, but not necessarily the act that was... Uh, described by this woman in the Michael Douglas scenario, which is just a new one that's uh, that's come out. Uh, is there is there such a thing as getting ahead of this? Can you do that? I don't. Um, how, I hope that the the individual that came out uh, with I don't know. I'm not sure what happened with Michael Douglas. To be honest with you, but um, I hope that. I don't think you could get ahead of it. Like if, if the survivor has finally have a voice in the platform to come out and say, this happened to me, this person with this power and privilege did this to me, I hope that as a community and as a society that we're able to, to support them and give them what they need. And it sounds to me that we're, still, we're not there yet. We still have very powerful men that have, a lot of them have not really denied it. Um, and yet we are questioning the survivor's vigility. Uh, the Michael Douglas story uh, came forward to deny private claims of sexual misconduct from a former employee who worked for him over 30 years ago. The woman claimed Douglas had used colorful language in front of her, spoke raunchily with friends in front of her, and blackballed her from the industry, and then committed an act in front of her. In an interview uh, with Deadline, Douglas apologized for using the colorful uh, language, and then says, quote, none of it was directed at her. She didn't say it was. It was my office, and that was the tone that I set. Uh, adding that he had uh, worked out of his New York home at the time. As to the colorful language, she may have overheard private conversations, and if she would, uh, if she was offended, she could have excused herself. Uh, the actor also denied blackballing allegations, uh, calling it completely untrue. Uh, is that getting ahead of it? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, 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 I really would love to hear the story, like her side. Yeah. And that's and if you look at it, all the all this, everybody says um, there's women that are coming, there's there's people coming out and accusing so and so, and there are all these alleged allegations, but nobody is really putting the attention on the survivor. Hmm. What are they saying? What actually happened? Why have they been believed? Why have they had to wait for so long for their stories to come out? Where is that uh, that story still not there? We're still talking about the uh, the Francos and the Douglases and the Weinstein. What about the survivors? This movement is about them, and yet. 
their voices are still not necessarily amplified and heard. Good point. Alma Arguello is with us, Executive Director of Savis of Halton, talking about actor James Franco, talking about uh, his al- the allegations against him in regard to sexual misconduct on the Stephen Colbert show last night. Alma, thank you for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Canada's first commander of the International Space Station is with us, Colonel Chris Hadfield. Chris, it's such a pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, Great to be talking with you also, Scott. Uh, Obviously, the reason for the call today, February 8th, first Ontario Concert Hall, you're going to be doing a show. Tell us about this show and what you're presenting to the audience. Yeah, you know, as one of Canada's astronauts and and serving in the military, um, I lived outside of Canada served outside of Canada for 26 years. And when I moved back a couple years ago, um, you really get an appreciation for, for what we've created here, what we, what we maintain. It's, it's a rare thing in the world. You know, I lived in Russia and the U.S. for a bunch of years. And I happened to come back just a little bit before our 150th birthday. Hmm. And, and I thought, especially as a Canadian who's, who's left the planet and, and been around it on three different space flights. You know, I, I've been around the world over 2,600 times. It, it gives me kind of a, an odd and, and unique perspective on Canada and its place in the world. And I thought for Canada's 150th, I should, I should try and put all that thoughts together and see if, if there's any sort of way to turn it into a, you know, a, a talk and a presentation and a way to discuss it with people. And so right through all last year, um, I spoke in a bunch of places around the country, but I ran out of time. And I, but I thought, you know, birthdays are just sort of arbitrary anyway. So it's Canada 151 with like the overproof. Tour. Mm. But, uh, but it, it sold out everywhere that I went. And it's, it's an opportunity to kind of look at how we got to where we are right? and i'm i go way deep into the original geology of canada but but then how did we become the people that we are here the from the very first folks twenty thousand years ago whatever right through to the people that are arriving yesterday and and what makes us who we are and and then what should we be doing next to mm-hmm. me that's the most important part of a birthday is thinking about what should what should we do next? Where should I where should I be focusing my energies now? What's the cool stuff that's available? And then I'll talk about a bunch of Canadians that that probably folks have never heard of. Uh, some really interesting, fascinating work going on uh, around the country. Some really inspirational people. And and I'll do a question and answer once or twice with the audience there at the at the concert hall. Um, a, a chance to interact. And, and I'll play a little music course because that's a great way to celebrate Canada and there's lots of great Canadian stories told through music and to me it's just I mean what I hope is that people come away from the evening thinking boy that was fun and interesting and I learned some stuff and I'm I'm proud of where I am and who who I'm with but also hey there's some cool things I want to go do next you know there's some stuff I want to look up there's some stuff I want to be part of that's that's my whole hope, and, and it's gone very well in, uh, in the other places I've had a chance to go across the country. But uh, as you say, the 8th of February, I mean, Hamilton's where, where, uh, where I joined the Air Force, and it's where I started my, my whole career, and, uh, it's, and I've flown out of the airport there many times, so I'm very much looking forward to being there on the 8th. What do, when, uh, when uh, offered the opportunity, what does the audience ask you? What do they want to know? Oh, it's... It, uh, you know, the people that ask the most honest and I think the most interesting questions are, are the younger folks. 
they and, and I, I, wonder, I always sort of wondered why. You know, an adult will ask me, "So, what's it like in space?" Mm. Which is sort of an empty-headed question. It's sort of like, "What's it like on Earth?" Yeah. I mean, how do you answer what's it like on Earth? It's kind of a huge thing. And I think the reason is adults have sort of said, well, I'm never going to fly in space. So I'm just sort of peripherally interested. But kids, they're like, hey, I have a shot at flying in space. So I want to know the details. I want to know how this works. It's part of their, their really imaginative and engaged thinking. And so they'll ask, uh, you know, if, if there's no gravity, then heat doesn't rise. So when you exhale, how come the carbon dioxide doesn't just build up more and more in front of your face and then you suffocate? Wow. You know, that's that's what a nine-year-old will ask me. And, and, and then an adult will say, so what's it like? <laughs> so it's, it's just kind of, it's I really enjoy the interaction with, uh, with young Canadians. And I tie in with schools on Skype regularly. I teach at the University of Waterloo. I've lost count of the number of schools I've spoken in across the country. But the real intent of of the show on the eighth, also of course, is for all ages, you know, from six to eighty six, and uh, and and it, and it's lovely to be able to look out in a crowd and see Canadians from from all different stripes and all different uh, backgrounds and ages all there for the same purpose of just thinking about who we are. What can we take away from this show? What are we missing here on Earth? What can we learn? Um, I think part of the huge privilege of being one of Canada's astronauts is um, to see the entire world in 90 minutes, um, you know, to be overhead Hamilton and 14 minutes later to be overhead Paris mm. and 10 minutes later, you're over Africa. And then 25 minutes later, you're, you're coming up on Australia. And, and in the time it takes to eat dinner in a restaurant, you go all the way around the world mm. and then you do it again and again and again. And, I think it puts the world in a more realistic perspective. It, it makes it sort of inexorably become one place in your head. This is where we all live. This is, we share this thing. We're all here together. And the repeated pattern of human behavior, of human settlement, of, of how if you come across Hamilton, you know, you can see the, the downtown and the industry section and the airport and the railway and the roads and the water and then you come across south of England, and, and you see the same thing. And then northern Africa, and you see the same thing. And, then, and you realize we're, we're all fundamentally the same. And we have maybe different languages, or our parents raised us with different cultures and religions, but the human experience is common. And it's, sometimes it's so easy to lose track of that on a local scale. And, and so I think a big part of, of looking at Canada on its, on its birthday time here is is to look at us in context of the rest of the world, maybe see it a little bit through, um, through an astronaut's eyes and then rethink you know, your perspective of things and just how important or unimportant local issues truly are. I think it's, it's worth thinking about at least and weighing in your own decision-making. It's unfortunate we all can't do a lap just to experience that and, and understand <laughs> well, I, that. I do my best to share those laps. <laughs> you know, I have written three books, and, and I just did a series with the, with the BBC on astronaut selection, and I'm doing a 10-part series with National Geographic right now called One Strange Rock with, um, with Will Smith that I think folks will really like. It'll start airing in March. Just looking at One Strange Rock, meaning Earth, looking at our planet um, through that perspective. So, so, um, so yeah, I, I do my best to share that one lap around the planet. Do you miss space? Oh, I'm, I'm not a guy who misses stuff. I, I don't spend a lot of time... To, to me, missing something is sort of wishing it was the past. Right. And, and I, 
I really am interested in the present and the future. The past is just sort of how you got to where you are. There are some people that I miss, Scott, you know, people that died young. Mm. That for sure. I wish they were still here to share on what's going on. But uh, no, I, I don't, you know, to me, it's just an amazing thing that is part of my life and part of other people's lives that's given me all the various education that turned me into who I am today. But what really matters is what am I going to do next? Not, not what I did 20 years ago. That's just a thing in history. I'm much more interested in how we can do a, a better job of, of, you know, today and tomorrow and everything that's coming up. Give us a little bit of backstory of how you got here. Uh, you talked about others dying young. This is quite a journey, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I decided to be an astronaut when I was a little kid. In, um, I was born in Sarnia, and then my folks have a farm near Milton, so I was raised in those two places. And I, I saw the first people going to space. I mean, I'm older than space flight. It, it's really new. Nobody, when I was born, there were no astronauts. No mm. one had ever flown in space, so... So it was all new when I was new, and it inspired me. And, and I thought, how can I be part of that? And so I, uh, I thought, well, astronauts fly in space, so I should learn to fly. So I joined the Air Cadets. I, I went gliding up at, uh, up at the airport there, up on Hamilton Mountain um, with the Air Cadets. I uh, decided to go to university. That's why I joined the Air Force, went to RMC. I actually ended up going to four different universities, um, and then I served 25 years in the Air Force, flew F-18s as part of NORAD as a Cold War pilot, intercepting Soviet bombers, um, armed Soviet bombers and an armed F-18 off the east coast of Canada back in the 80s. And then the Canadian Space Agency hired four of us, including Julie Payette, our current mm-hmm. governor general, back in, um, in 1992. And I started serving as an astronaut in 92. And then I served 21 years as one of Canada's astronauts. Uh, I was NASA's chief of ops in Russia and a bunch of different jobs and flew in space three different times and helped build the Mir space station, the International Space Station, yeah, all of that. Uh, the difference between spending a long period of time in space, in the International Space Station, as opposed to going up on a regular flight, which comes down after a week or so, what's the major adjustment there? Um, I think it's the difference between, uh, I don't know, a sprint and a marathon, or, or maybe something you build in your garage over a weekend or, or building a, a whole apartment building. They're just a very different experience, and, and it takes a different focus, a different set of skills, a different patience, but they're both great experiences, and, in, and actually they're both very dangerous for an astronaut, but the, uh, the experiences themselves, one takes a huge, uh, abrupt, continued force, and the other takes a long application of expertise and will. What do you remember most about being in space? Oh, I don't know. I try and remember the whole thing. I, I did two spacewalks. I was Canada's first spacewalker. Uh, it's, it's on the back of the $5 bill. And that is perhaps the most magnificent experience of my life, hmm. to be able to go outside of a spaceship and, and hold on with one hand. And at one point, we actually went through the aurora. They were rippling past and pour, essentially pouring around my body and between my legs to, to personally, viscerally experience the Earth's aurora. Yeah, I, I don't know how anything can, can fit into perspective with that. It's an, it's an amazing personal memory to have. What's liftoff and reentry like? 
uh, dangerous, uh, hard, physically punishing, technically extremely demanding. It is the most focused 10 minutes of your life to launch a rocket ship. You, you, it doesn't fly itself. It takes a huge amount of, of your life to prepare for those 10 minutes. And then reentry takes an hour, but it, it is still fraught with peril and, and step by step and uh, a real complicated team activity to safely guide your rocket ship up and your spaceship back down again. Uh, I was lucky enough to, to successfully do it three times. Uh, during this voyage on the International Space Station, you use social media a tremendous amount, uh, and it was amazing to watch, amazing to see, amazing to be a part of. It was, as, it, it was as if we were there. Explain what that has done to help the whole program and just enlighten young people and everyone about what's going on up there. Um, yeah, and we only have about one more minute here, Scott, yep. uh, so I'll do my best. Um, uh, it is a huge orbiting laboratory that has essentially no gravity. So you can do experiments up on a spaceship that are impossible to do on Earth. Uh, we study how fluids behave, so we're learning about fluid physics. We study how flame behaves, so we've learned a lot about combustion and flame extinguishing. Uh, we study the human body extensively because your balance system and your blood pressure regulation system and, and all kinds of things change rapidly. So it's a laboratory for understanding ourselves. It's a place to look at the universe because there's no atmosphere in the way. So we understand the universe better, and we have big telescopes on the station and an alpha magnetic spectrometer to try and figure out what dark matter is. And then the, maybe perhaps the most important thing is it's an unprecedented way to look at the world. We, we see the whole world every 90 minutes. So we have all sorts of sensors staring straight down to try and really truly understand this planet as one integrated place and not just draw all our conclusions from the little tiny corner of it that, that each of us lives in, and put all those things together. It, it's, it's an amazing, big, orbiting laboratory, and I'm proud to have helped build it and, uh, and really happy to talk about it. Colonel Chris Hadfield has been with us February 8th. He will touch down First Ontario Concert Hall and tell his story. Uh, and, of course, uh, take your questions as well. Chris, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. We, re we really appreciate the time you spent with us today. And good luck, whatever the future holds for you. Yeah, same to you, Scott. Nice to speak with you. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.